The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. How long does it take to read one page? Well, one to five minutes depends how fast of a reader you are and how difficult that page is. So you should use time to read at least one page per day. There are yogis who would say, well, study at least five minutes per day. But on the other hand, there are people who are very studious, who like to read and inform themselves, and who would gladly read one chapter from a book one day, or spend half an hour, or spend uh, one hour per day studying. Not to mention that there are yogis who are the scholarly type, and who would spend hours every day studying, translating Sanskrit texts, uh, comparing different sources and so on. So there is a huge difference between a scholarly one and one which is uh, basically not so much into reading. But even the one who is not so much into reading, the yogis say he or she should spend at least some time every day. Don't let a day pass without flexing this other muscle concerning studying. Do not lose the capacity of studying spiritually. Now the things <coughs> are uh, a little bit complicated here because uh, we should say, well, so what's the big deal? Is it just mental exercise? I mean, shall we practice the mind? The yogis say, well, there is more to this story with the study. First of all, one of the theories of the yogis is that by study, one is building up the subconscious contents. That means when you study and you have the words and the concepts, for a lot of things that are known in spirituality, you will be able in meditation to discover them, to formulate them, to identify them. A more extreme application of this is that sometimes people can have spiritual experiences and if they don't know what it is or if they cannot identify them, they can either get confused or they can pass over them without realizing what has happened to them and what they are close to, or sometimes they can get even scared of them or something. A classical example is uh, the case of the classic American, of the great American poet Walt Whitman, who at some point had some experiences which bordered to samadhi, which are actually were forms of samadhi, of cosmic consciousness, and this great poet never knew that there is a samadhi and that human beings can enter in ecstasy in this way or in that way. And basically he got confronted with the feeling that maybe he's crazy because it was too good to be true. He saw things which uh, you don't read about in the school books and so on. And basically this man, he thought, oh wow, you know, maybe I'm going crazy. Till the end of his life, many of his friends considered him crazy and he himself was sometimes doubting seriously if he is completely mentally sane. Were he a yogi like Milarepa and he would have known about the different levels of the universe and the different chakras and the different states of consciousness, he would have gladly said, wow, you know, I had yesterday a state where I went up till the sixth level of my consciousness or whatever, and I have seen the causal connections between this and this, and he wouldn't have seemed so crazy and he would have even used it. He would have said, wow, I would like to have this once more, I would like to go deeper in this, and something like that. Basically, as you know, probably the yogis don't encourage too much sterile theory, that people know theory, 
but they don't do practice. Shivananda said one gram of practice is worth tons of theory. So basically the yogis say if you don't practice you can read about samadhi days and days and it will serve almost nothing. But they don't believe in the opposite either, that you don't know anything about the practice, uh, I'm sorry, about the theory of the things, and basically you only practice. They don't believe in practice without knowing what you do and what to expect. They consider that accumulation of some concepts produces a system inside you. There is a hierarchy. You know where you are. You know what to expect. You know that if Kundalini is rising, it will feel like this. You know that the chakras are like this or like that. That means you can already have an order in the cloud. And if suddenly you feel very hot in the body, you are never going to say it's the water energy which got amplified in me. You will always say, wow, this must be the fire energy amplified in my body because you have already some theoretical concepts you know what to expect and so on so basically the yogis say it is good to enrich yourself with the mental knowledge of those who have been before you and to identify spirituality so you go a little bit on a beaten track actually to anticipate Patanjali himself that great author of Yoga Sutra, he says through the practice of Svadhyaya, you reach contact, you reach telepathic contact with the spirit of the one who wrote that particular literature. The yogis simply say that if you go in the mentality of an author, you start thinking like that author and therefore being on the same wavelength, you get to have a telepathic contact. Basically what the yogis would say here is that if you read books by Shivananda, you start thinking like Shivananda after a day or two and you start being inspired basically by Shivananda being a little bit more on the same wavelength with him. So this becomes actually a genuine spiritual guidance that a book is actually a guidance. The book itself guides you in a mysterious way because you read it. It's impossible not to read, for example, the words of Jesus from the New Testament and after you read it for half an hour every day for five days, you shouldn't afterwards ask yourself what would a guy like Jesus think in this situation? What would a man like Jesus do if he were put in the same situation where I am? In the moment when you ask yourself this, you are actually asking for guidance telepathically, inspiration from Jesus, because the answer of course comes, and you say, wow, a guy like Jesus would have done like this, he wouldn't have stayed and taken this thing, he would have done this, this. Basically, there you have your answer, there you have your inspiration. If I were to be a spiritual hero like that fellow, I am going to stand up and to do this, I'm not going to put up with this or that. So in this way, this is actually guidance, it's inspiration. If you read it every day, if you do it every day, you stay in a certain way of thinking. So the yogis were very uh, beautiful about this. They simply said, by reading spiritual literature, you are going to build up a kind of skeleton, a kind of background, a kind of uh, scaffold of the spirituality. So every experience that you will have to practice, it will come in its proper drawer and you will not be surprised or scared or anything and you will understand yourself better and better. And on the other hand, you are going to get a lot of telepathic inspiration at the level of the very ideas and mind, which is priceless. But the things are a little bit more difficult than that. Else the application is pretty simple. We can, if we don't explain, we just say, well, this is the point here. This is what the yogis have said. Study, thus be inspired, make order out of the chaos in your mind, and in this way your life will be enriched and your practice will benefit. 
There are a few points which though need to be mentioned specially. One of them is identifying the term of study, because it's easy for me to say study, study. You know, don't let a day go without reading a page. Don't rust, uh, don't, don't let this muscle rust, you know, just practice on it, keep this capacity alive. There is, however, a problem. What is spiritual study? Here we're having the same judgmentalism which was necessary for us when dealing with music. Music does not simply say, well, listen to music, meditate with music, because it's going to be superb anyhow. No. When we said about music meditation, we said music meditation is very novel and very useful and such a wonderful way of making yoga, but be careful because with the wrong kind of music it will put you in terrible situations. It's the same with study. Study, instead of being self-study or a spiritual encouragement, it can be a spiritual sabotage. That means if you read stupid things, you are going to believe stupid things and to be inspired in stupid ways. If instead of reading the book of a heroic yogi who wants to conquer the universe through his yoga, you read the body about yoga written by a wimp, then you automatically are contaminated by a wimpish spirit and we can say that that author doesn't actually represent yoga he's actually nailing a nail in the coffin of yoga he's actually sabotaging the actual view of it basically with study we need simply to distinguish because we need to be judgmental because not everything which is uh, given as spirituality today is spirituality not only because a lot of things reclaim themselves as spirituality today but because there are many authors who write about spirituality and they are purely non-spiritual so in this way here we need to make a separation and that separation is very difficult to make conceptually for a very simple reason I think there are so many books published by now on spirituality or connected fields that I think nobody has ever seen, I mean even if you take only the covers of all the books published on it could make a library as big as the Alexandria library or something like this uh, basically what I'm trying to say is that I don't think there is a human being who read all the books about spirituality or knows all of them and basically can tell you yes, yes, no, no, yes, 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 no, no like select them and say this is good, this comes into the category and this comes not like with music so basically, then what to do? How to say, well, this is what you should look for? There are a few hints, and I would like then to make you understand the point here, because in our Western culture, to be a bit judgmental is considered to be politically incorrect. Like, well, you cannot really judge books. It's your own opinion, right, that this book is good, and this book will not be good. Uh, basically, everybody has got the right to write whatever they want and to have their own opinion that is correct but in yoga still if you consider that you get telepathically attuned with the mind of the author then of course it is very important what kind of author you read and how representative he or she is if you want me to take it to the scandalous limit I mean to put to transform it into a uh, provocation I can simply say like this if Ernest Hemingway the great American writer was a schizophrenic and he was reading the books of Ernest Hemingway and he is a big novelist no doubt, no doubt then it would mean entering in touch with the depressive mind of a schizophrenic 
basically nobody wants to do that, although Ernest Hemingway is quite a novelist. So basically the yogis would say the same. It doesn't matter if the book is well written or it is good or so. It touches actually another essence, the spirit of it, what kind of spirit it communicates. That is why I want to tell, warn you from the very beginning that in yoga, since we are speaking very clearly about things such as non-violence or brahmacharya, the continence of the sexual energy, or about this and this, there is a spirit of things. The yogis of India and Tibet, they have grown their spirituality in a certain way. If something is coming and then it's going against it, then Okay, let's not be judgmental morally or socially. Everybody has the right to write down whatever they want, apparently, today. But the thing is that then this comes out of the yoga spirituality. Example, I was one day in a spiritual bookshop in uh, Copenhagen when I was teaching in Denmark, and basically a spiritual bookshop is a kind of new age salad full of all kinds of books about aliens, about astrology, about crystals, about yoga, about uh, trans channels and guides, about you name it, you know, whatever spiritual subject is there, even books about Satanism and witchcraft, you know, they are all just splashed together, it's spirituality, you know, for some people, for example, Satanism is to be sold in books, as in shops of uh, spirituality, while of course Satanism would be quite the opposite, even conceptually, because it's a worship of the anti-divine. But let's leave this gross example. I was, let me give you a, some more subtle to show you that still the problem is quite painful. I was looking through the shelf about yoga and sexuality, see if something new came up, and then I find a brochure of a guy. I read the introduction, I flip through it, this guy seemed to be the salt of the earth, the gift of God to mankind. He really had the, one of the best opinions about himself that I have ever read in an author. He was smart, he was healthy, he was shining, he was a hell of a guy according to his own opinion. He didn't need a foreword written by anybody else. And uh, he was now willing to sell the secret of his phenomenal success. To what did he owe the fact that he was such a cool guy? The secret was that ever since the age of 15 or something like this, he had been masturbating vigorously every day, uh, once or a couple of times per day. Basically, he advised all the young guys, if they would like to be as shining as he was, to get hold of their shaft and start the work big time. <laughs> Basically, uh, this is a stupidity, right? Because when all the yogis and all the spiritual people speak about brahmacharya, and it's obvious in all the spiritual cultures that if you don't conserve your sexual energy, you are not going to build it. There comes an idiotic git and said, jerk it off three times a day and you'll be shining. Right? You can imagine that there have been a lot of young ignorant men who just came up flipping through it and bought that stupid book. And they said, well, sounds interesting. Yeah, this guy might have a point, you know, and started doing on it. If I were from the... Spanish Inquisition, I would have the guy burned at stake, you know, crucified because he was preaching such a stupidity, you know, because while all the spirituality is preaching a clear thing, you know, this guy was just coming against and he was more like talking for the devil, you know, he was more like an agent of spiritual sabotage. That's why the book was sold in a spiritual shop in the shelf about yoga and sex, but it had nothing to do neither with yoga nor with anything. It was just 
an idiotic misinforming book which did not have the spirit of yoga. Some ignorant could have read it and thought that this was a point of view of this and that. I've read other books, I can continue with the list and I usually give three, four examples such as, uh, I don't know, there is, I have read another one recently, <coughs> that means a few years ago, which was called even yoga and sex, just like this. And their opinions about sex and about the yoga practice were so far from anything of tradition and so profane in a way that actually it basically had nothing to do with it. People who would buy it just for the title, they would get disappointed or confused at the best. Let me give you another example which shows that sometimes it can be very subtle. There is a book, and the funny thing, the book is pretty good. It's a 70% good book, I would say, written by Yesudian and Elizabeth H. Uh, a he and a she. Apparently one of them is the pupil of the other or the partner of the other, I don't know. They wrote a series of books, but their most famous book somewhere in the 70s was called Initiation. Apparently these two were practicing a kind of regression therapy, kind of self-hypnosis to see your previous lives and then thus uh, make it into a kind of psychotherapy. Okay, the method was very controversial and discussable. With this kind of method everybody dreams that in the previous life they have been a princess or a king or a great yogi or a monk. You will not find a single person who will realize that in a previous life they have been an insignificant moron or just a cleaning personnel person or you know, no, everybody secretly wishes, so basically it's wishful thinking, it's not uh, just the truth actually. Uh, but the method can be misinterpreted, but that's not what I mean. Okay, the method is a method, the guys were producing a method there and they are pretending that they discovered something that was the right of bringing new things up to the world. But now there comes a funny one. I don't know if it was he or she, I don't remember anymore, I read this many years ago. They came up with the point. In one of these regression therapies, they came up with a very important answer. They were wondering why they are having some blockages, why they were not really up to do spiritual practice. And the answer came from a previous life. Uh, either he or she, whatever, it doesn't matter. In a previous life, they have been a great monk, a great yogi, something and they did a lot of spiritual practice and they were so keen on it because they and they were so keen on it that they pushed it and they pushed it beyond the limit and actually they blew themselves a nadi or they you know they did something to their energy system to their chakra system and basically so in this life they had to stay and wait a little bit. It was like recovering after an accident. Uh, they were in convalescence after a life where they have been really tough and so on. What a stupid kind of conclusion. It means you will never hear any of the great yogis telling to people, maybe you did yoga too much in your previous life, and therefore in this one you should sit and do nothing. That is simply a justification to laziness. It's wishful thinking, and of course you feel guilty and ashamed to say, I am lazy, tamasic, inert, and I cannot do spirituality. And then if you can have an elegant excuse, a metaphysical excuse, Oh, suddenly it's so much more posh to say that I have been doing a lot in the previous life and burned myself a nadi and now I'm just on a way, you know, I don't do anything. First of all, you don't know that there is a previous life and a next life. You don't have the ultimate proof of it. So if there is no next life, you are fried. You basically postponed stupidly. That's what... Uh, I think it was Osho who said that India fell in the most bitter trap with this 
reincarnation theory because they keep on postponing doing spirituality for next life while they don't even have the proof that there is a next life. So he said from this standpoint it's more better to think the Christian way. You know, there is only one life and one try. It's now or never. Either I get paradise or I get hell. It's as simple as that, you know. So basically put your ass to work right now because the problem has a degree of emergency. So in this way, you can be sure that a lot of people read the book of uh, H. and Yesudian. It was quite a famous book in its own time. And they read this and they immediately identified with it, especially those who are more mulatharistic, more lazy, more slow, more tamasic. They said, ah, yeah, I also felt the same. Now, I didn't know why, but now I think I understand. Aha, so it's possible that I made a lot of spirituality in my previous life and now you know, I did some mistake and now I need to take a rest on it. Never. Never would Ramakrishna say, oh, you did too much uh, spirituality practice in your previous life, now you should take a break. He always said, do it, do it, reach it now, reach and so on. Swami Shivananda in his books, he says, don't start yoga tomorrow, start it tonight if you haven't started yet. And he says, and if you cannot do it in your own country, in your own town, take the first boat and come to Rishikesh and let's do yoga together because this is an urgent problem of life, you know. You need to solve this great mystery of who you are and what is the mystery for which you exist, why have you been born, why you are here. So in this way, this is again uh, a sp something, an information, which does not correspond to the spirit. Many, spirit. many people actually might have got turned off from their yoga practice by reading such a thing and finding even an elegant excuse for not doing. That's why the yogis say you read such a book, such a book is uninspiring from a yogic standpoint, is sabotaging you, you cannot discern the truth, especially, I mean, if I read it and I compare it with all what I know from Yogananda, Shivananda, Maharishi and with the traditional literature of yoga, I can immediately say what an absurdity. But somebody who didn't have a culture in yoga, they say, mm, maybe it's true. To an expert in yoga, this part of their book appears as pure bollocks and you can put the finger on it and say this is bollocks, this is false. But when you don't know, it can confuse you and that is why you are going through a big labyrinth out there of information which can be authentic or not so authentic. To end this list of examples, I could continue of course, to end this list of examples I'll give you one which even in the title contains a ridiculous one as a book, and funny again, it is a book which inside has some useful psychological hints, actually the contents does not reflect the stupidity of the title, but the title, my god, what a stupid title, it's a book of psychology about relationship between men and women, and it is simply called Women Who Love Too Much. This is simply an absurdity, because on this planet there is nobody who loves too much, there is always people who love too little. You'll never get Jesus look at you and say, Whoa, you know, I'm so impressed. You love so much, you know. You love too much, you know. Please, cool, chill out a little bit. Your love is simply too much. No. The problem of this planet is that our souls are in agony for lack of love, not for too much love. There isn't on this planet somebody who loved too much ever. Basically, the problem is not that we love too much, but the problem is that we fight with our ego. The worst enemy of love 
is the ego because the ego says me, 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 me and love is not me, not me, not me it's you, you, you basically love is pushing you to give yourself to others even when it is not in your own interest even when it is sounding foolish for everybody else so that's why American psychologists came with the idiotic theory that love does not exist because they say love is like a mental disease when you are in love you do things even against yourself so it's kind of against your own spirit of conservation against common sense love is a mental disease perhaps for them lucky we are not ruled by American psychiatry yet but basically if you don't feel love you will just say the grapes are sour uh, it doesn't exist it's a mental disease to be in love then all the poetry of love and all the love of this planet and all the great mystics and so on is just a mental disease we are just about to declare them all poor them all the people who loved God and who loved humanity and who loved nature and who loved animals and whatever to declare them insane because now we have discovered that love is a disease so in this way I'm telling you this because what a title you know what a stupid title what an encouragement to the ego women who love too much of course they could have written and probably they did also write one afterwards which was called men who love too much what a stupid thing you know you just even if you don't buy the book you'd go in the shelf of the shop and say Hatha Yoga this this and then you say oh an interesting title women who love too much I mm, don't have money today I'll buy it next month but it's an interesting book this one you know even the fact that you read the title gives the message to your subconscious mind that yes there can be situations where women and men love too much see the ego was right you have to be careful to keep something for yourself not to be a fool not to give yourself to no no keep something for yourself see what an egoistic message what an ego encouraging message when actually we are fighting this beast of an ego to defeat it we are fighting our own ego to be able to surpass our ego uh, this ego is a monster which makes this mo world and ourselves as individual in a pain and there is one which reinforces it says see I was right shouldn't love too much you should keep something for yourself no love says you should keep nothing for yourself you should throw yourself without safety net and without anything it's a big adventure it's wonderful to be in love you are not in control and you don't ask anything in exchange it's unconditional and it's beautiful and infinite and that's exactly what makes it so amazing and basically I'm telling you this because see literature which is sold in the name of spirituality and no real yogi would include it on the list of Swadhyaya they would rather say you know after you became expert in yoga and solid then you can read this kind of literature and ridicule it you know read it with a red pen and start cutting all the stupid ideas and point them this book is really confused and so on but when you are building yourself up such literature is not very healthy for you it is exactly the spirit of it as I was telling you a few days ago uh, some yoga authors, oh, they will just say pamper you, be hedonistic, tapas, tapas is a heavy word, right? No, take it easy, if you feel like doing it, do it, if one day you feel weak and bored, don't do it, really. This is not the way you conquer the mountains, this is not the way you climb the Himalaya, the Everest, you know, when you climb Mount Everest, you climb, it's an effort, it's an act of will. It is the same with yoga, you know, when you proceed doing yoga, you have to do it and sometimes you might have obstacles. Think about Milarepa, you know, his karma was not the best of the karma. So when he started making yoga, he must have had a lot of obstacles and a lot of doubts and a lot of hell coming out from his heart. And yet, 
Milarepa fought valiantly and he won. Therefore, that's the spirit of it. In Hatha Yoga Pradipika, just to confront you with how you would learn yoga in the West, to show you that the spirit is a problem. In Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is one of the first primers of Hatha Yoga, one of the three fundamental books of Hatha Yoga written in the tradition of yoga, it is said clearly in the last chapter, which deals with disease and other obstacles and problems in yoga. It says, when disease is rising in the way of your practice, double up the practice. That means if you feel that something is coming and you cannot practice, no, you shouldn't give up. You should double the practice up. Instead of two hours of yoga, do four hours of yoga. And be convinced that if tomorrow things are going worse, you'll do eight hours instead of four hours. I mean, be dead stubborn. Be completely, completely fanatic on it. Then nothing can stop you. Nothing. Not even your negative karma or anything can stop such a person who has this attitude. See, this is the spirit of yoga. When you read Geranda Samhita, which is uh, the other, another one of the three primers of Hatha Yoga, when you read it, even a chapter, you feel, wow, I should do this right away. How interesting, you know. This is, uh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm vibrating, you know. I'm vibrant with the wish to, to try this tonight, you know, right now. You never say, oh, maybe I did too much in the previous life, so I'm not, no. It's wow, you know, it incites you to practice. That's the spirit of yoga, the enthusiasm of it, the wish of it. That is why I say, there are things which build up the spirit, and there are things which do not help you to build up the spirit. That is why, with the literature of yoga, with Svadhyaya, we need to be judgmental. And if I am trying ever, if I am, people are asking me, okay, so what do you recommend then? There are only a few rough points because we cannot make a world bibliography of yoga and spirituality and start uh, putting signs in it, yes or no. So, the first thing which I always tell to people, and it is a thing which is remarkable, is this. If you want to read something good about yoga, and it's valid for spirituality generally, the first thing you should look into, always, keep it as a kind of general advice, is look into traditional literature. That means everything in this planet, Buddhism or Christianity, every spiritual teaching, alchemy or whatever you have, or yoga itself, it doesn't come from some Tom, Dick and Harry. It comes from a tradition. It comes from traditional texts. For example, today many people in the West, they do Hatha Yoga. Either they do the Iyengar style or the Ashtanga style or the Vikram style or whatever. But Hatha Yoga is not the invention of Iyengar or of Vikram or of anybody. It comes from hundreds of years back and thousands of years back from some texts which are clear, which are consecrated. You even have them in your papers of today and in your bibliography from course number two. It comes from Hatha Yoga Pradipika, from Geranda Sanghita, from Shiva Sanghita. These are the three basic texts of Hatha Yoga in India. When you read them, you will find complete difference from what is practiced today as Hatha Yoga. And then you are bound to come to say, whoa, 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 you know, I'm doing yoga with this guy called Vikram, or whatever, his style, but he seems to be completely besides the point, you know. He is not teaching me any yoga, because look, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, 
Oh, no, I'm doing Paschimottanasana or whatever. I am doing Paschimottanasana, but look what Hatha Yoga Pradipika says about it. I never heard this in the class. Look what Giranda Sanghita says about Paschimottanasana. I never got to be told to do this thing and so on. That means I can see immediately if that is in the spirit of the tradition or not. Remember, yoga comes from a tradition. It's all the yogis of this tradition. Either we speak about Shivananda or Yogananda or Ramakrishna or whoever, they fed themselves spiritually from a tradition which is not made by a certain person, which is kind of transpersonal in this way. And basically, the first thing to look is the tradition. It is the cream of the cream, the best of the best. That means perhaps some of you are not sure if they are going to read many books of yoga in their lives. Perhaps some of you would say, well, actually, I would like to know a little bit more about yoga, so I think I will purchase myself a couple of books of yoga. But it's obvious, if I would like to buy myself some books of yoga, I wouldn't like to read crappy second-hand literature, second-class literature of yoga. I would like to read some good things, because if I will ever read five books of yoga, I would like perhaps to read the best five books of yoga published until today. What is on top of the list? What is the best of the best? The answer is very simple. You should always start with the traditional texts of yoga. Nothing can beat the traditional texts of yoga. Even if it's something written by Swami Shivananda, who is a great yogi, you heard me often mentioning his name as one of my heroes, and he is one of the heroes in yoga as well, uh, still, whatever Shivananda wrote cannot be compared with the Shiva Samhita or with the others. Those are the origins of the yogic literature. Even Shivananda learned his truths from there. That is why, if you want to read five books of yoga, read the cream of the cream, the best of the best, the top of the top. That would be traditional literature. You are going to ask me, so what is traditional literature? In the papers that you have received today, you have got a lot of titles of exactly traditional literature. Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Geranda Sanghita, Shiva Sanghita. The famous Yoga Sutra of Patanjali that I always comment, I quote from this Patanjali and his Yoga Sutra. For those of you who want to do Karma Yoga, the Bhagavad Gita, the famous Bhagavad Gita. There are then other such spiritual texts, such as different Upanishads, which is the famous Upanishadic texts. Amrita Bindu Upanishad, Kundalini, uh, Yoga Kundalini Upanishad, Advaya Taraka Upanishad, whatever. Then you are interested in Tantra, well start reading the Tantric texts. Mahanirvana Tantra, Kularnava Tantra. Don't just buy the book uh, written by some Tom, Dick and Harry who has the claim to teach exotic oriental sex or something like this. Read Mahanirvana Tantra, read Kularnava Tantra to see what is their opinion about Tantric practice and so on. Therefore, there, are, there exist such fundamental texts, even today in the 21st century, not all the traditional literature of yoga and tantra has been translated. Much of it is not yet even identified, that means some of it is lying through the shelves of some private libraries in India, in that chaos, and they didn't even identify that that piece of literature exists or whatever. So in this way, I'm telling you this because I always advise people you want to read something really good, which is definitely Swadhyaya, read the traditional literature. You are going to see with surprise that traditional literature is hardly available. It's like there is a blockage, a force 
which actually blocks their good literature to reach the shelves and to reach you, while all kinds of second-hand stupid things, second class, second category stupid things, they are there galore. It's almost like uh, it, there is a kind of a law or something, and actually there is, you are going to hear something about it in a minute. Until then, remember, you will need to work for it. For example, in India, I'm sorry, in Rishikesh, which proclaimed itself proudly in the guidebooks, the capital, the world capital of yoga, my pupils were going through the bookshops three, four years ago asking for Hatha Yoga, Pradipika, Giranda, Sanghita, and things like this, and you couldn't find them even in India, although they are through the Indian traditional texts. And eventually, after three, four years, they plagued the bookshop so much that those guys in the wish of making money, of course, they started bringing them and Rishikesh became full of this kind of literature because the pupils were having lists of bibliography and they were going to the bookkeepers and they said, we want this kind of books, this on this list, do you have any? So then the bookkeepers, they photocopied them. Now here in Thailand, we are starting from zero with this. Basically, there are not many bookshops. Uh, there are not many bookshops which would sell yogic literature. Here I must admit many of you are handicapped at this. It is my thought that if we continue the next season, next year in January, as we plan to come back here uh, and teach for another season, then I am simply going to speak with our Indian friends and simply bulk mail a lot of books, make a kind of our own bookshop or something like this, selling here bookshops, uh, books brought from India, imported from India. Because uh, many people would say, well, there is a vacuum, you know, what to read. We are reading stupid novels or we are reading, you know, what we find in the shops. That's also true. But uh, I'm still speaking about the time when you will get to some real shops where you can find things like this. And uh, making the long story short, uh, let us simply say first traditional literature, which is not so easy to find. I provoked people on it and said, please, now exception made of this, what you find in Rish Keshwar, go and find, please go and find this kind of literature, see if you find it. The direct translations of traditional literature from yoga. I, some one of the girls was a pupil, they said, ah, I'm just going back to London, you know, in the Royal Library or whatever, the National Library, you'll find anything, you know, you can order it from any other library from Europe, you know, and so she went, she asked for this one, it was almost impossible to get them, even at the National Library in London and so on. Then she wrote back an email and she said, well, you are right, after all, it's not possible to get these things. Washava books are forbidden, they are on the black list, you cannot import them, this is not there, this is not there. Actually, it's quite an art to build up a spiritual library with good books, with not the second category of books, but with really the cream of the cream. <coughs> I will insist on that a little bit more later, until then the advice remains. Read traditional literature. Even with the traditional literature, you are going to see that there are problems. For example, corrupted translations. I have had the opportunity to see translations which were fake. Some people, many dared to fake even well-known translations such as Bhagavad Gita. This guy, Prabhupada, who was the author of uh, the famous sect Hare Krishna, he eventually wanted to translate, it, uh, translate Bhagavad Gita, but he had to translate Bhagavad Gita to make it fit with the dogmas of his sect. So basically, he made a corrupted translation of Bhagavad Gita, but very luxurious with hard covers and a lot of photos and whatever. And in that, he even had the nerve of calling it Bhagavad Gita as it is. I mean, the others are not Bhagavad This is real Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita as it is. 
they distributed it even freely to all the libraries in the western countries, to colleges and so on. When you go to the municipal library in Copenhagen and ask if you have any Bhagavad Gita, you will find on the shelf the Bhagavad Gita of Prabhupada because it was a free donation from the sect. Basically, when you read that book, it's full of errors of translation, but it's not errors, errors. It is intentional errors. And the guy twists the text any way he wants, just to fit his own stuff. And basically, when you read his comments to the text, the comment is, if you want to reach salvation, you should join the Hare Krishna. That's what Bhagavad Gita actually was telling 4,000 years ago. Join the Hare Krishna of Mr. Prabhupada, because that's salvation. So basically, it's a sect book. It's a corrupted translation. It's a sect book with sect and... Uh, ulterior motives so in this way that's why I say sometimes even the translation you have to check it it's one thing to read Bhagavad Gita of Prabhupada and it's another thing to read the Bhagavad Gita with the comments of Sri Aurobindo who is a gigantic yogi of India and it's another thing also to read the Bhagavad Gita translated by Edgerton by Zechner by, by Buitenen or by Sarvepali Radhakrishnan who was the president of India at some time and who was an eminent Sanskrit scholar in this way, uh, it is good even to compare, if you can compare. Then you are going to see that actually even the translations which are, are sometimes so thin and so difficult. Example, the famous Shiva Samhita, which is one of the fundamental texts in Hatha Yoga, and how many people do Hatha Yoga today? A lot, right? And yet Shiva Samhita, which is one of the three pillars of Hatha Yoga in the whole world and in India, is translated only in 1905, by a British Victorian uh, inspired uh, retired colonel from the Indian army, Indian colonial army called Chandra Vasu who was a total nerd at yoga with some things he simply did not understand some things he simply did not accept some things when you read his translation of Shiva Samhita you reach at the chapter 4 and at the chapter 4 you notice with surprise that the guy jumps from the mudra number 9 to the mudra number 11 or from 8 to 10 or something one of them is omitted and then in the footnote there you have a small comment in this translation we have omitted the translation of Vajroli Mudra because this is a dirty sexual practice done by some low class tantrics and we didn't want to translate this basically Shiva Samhita according to Indian belief at least is written by Shiva himself Shiva speaks in the first person and he says now I Shiva am going to teach you this and that blah blah and Mr. Chandra Vasu thought himself superior to Shiva now he had the right to censor what Shiva himself said into that text yeah, this is exactly the problem there are many with translations of problems and so on even recently I got an edition a few days ago somebody borrowed me an edition from the Hatha Yoga Pradipika translated by a pretty big yogi Swami Vishnu Devananda quite famed and so on and this guy when he reached at the sexual practices from the Hatha Yoga Pradipika he simply cut them he said we are not translating the shlokas from 52 to 79 because they describe some sexual practices which we don't do on the sattvic path and so on another git he felt that he had the right to censor one of the classics one of the pillars of Hatha Yoga if the information is there and the truth is there don't have the right to take it out just because it doesn't fit with your dogma or it doesn't fit with your truth or whatever so in this way you'll discover that there are problems even with these ones what else besides traditional literature well I am telling to my pupils also and with the traditional literature please expand it in every area that means you are interested in Buddhism 
then please don't read the books of Tom, Dick and Harry about Buddhism. You know, to understand Buddhism, first of all you should read the words of Buddha himself, because Buddhism starts through Buddha. The words of Buddha are presented in the Pali Canon. You can read them, the elegant discourses, the Dhammapada, the Sutra of the Heart and others. They are preserved. You want to study Buddhism? Then read the words of the Buddha, because Buddhism is Buddha himself. Uh, you want to study Christianity? Don't read Tom, Dick and Harry opinions on Christianity. First of all, read the words of Jesus, which are preserved in the four Gospels in the New Testament. To read the words and the deeds of that, if you have any doubt that the words and the deeds of Jesus in the New Testament have been censored by the Church and they have been modified too shamelessly, then you can as well go and read the Gnostic Scriptures. There exist today famous archaeological discoveries, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi Library, the Gnostic Scriptures, which have not been censored by any council or by any church. They are supposed to be the first century original Christian literature. Read them and see for yourself. That is where the original information comes. You want to learn something about Sufism? Don't read all kinds of silly literature about Sufism. The founder of Sufism is Mevlana Rumi, Mevlana Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi. This guy wrote quite a huge amount of literature. Read the Divan and the other things of Rumi. You will see what Sufism is all about and where it started and what's the original thing about it. So in this way, I recommend to everybody, you want to study Judaism or Kabbalah, read the Zohar, because the book of the Zohar is the origin of it, among others, and so on. So in this way, I always point to people, go to the roots, go to the origin, read the original literature, because many people made silly comments on it, and they twisted it the way they wanted. But there is an original literature. Then I'm also telling to people in yoga, especially because in yoga it is so clear that there is a very good category of yogic literature which is written by great yogis themselves. I mean, everybody can say then, and who are these great yogis? Well, in the history of yoga, there exist certain masters of yoga who have become simply gigantic, that nobody contests that these yogis were really big. And for example, uh, there are the great yogis of the 19th and 20th century, such as Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, Swami Vivekananda the Great, Swami Shivananda, Brahmana Maharishi, Mananda Mai, others and others, so many names, Yogananda pa When you read books written by this one, there is very little probability that you will read something stupid. Why? Because these men and women, they became yoga themselves. They were great teachers of yoga, who didn't only teach, they first, they reached samadhi, they reached the fruition of yoga, they reached the, the acme, the climax of yoga. And basically these people, they know, they were competent spiritual guides, and they know what yoga is about. You cannot really ever compare a book of yoga written by Richard Hitleman, or by Andre van Lisbeth, or I don't know by whom, compare it with the book of yoga written by Sri Aurobindo or by Swami Shivananda. Because Richard Hitleman is just another enthusiast, where Swami Shivananda is a person who reads Samadhi. The difference is colossal. That is why, remember, in yoga there are giants. You have Abhinava Gupta, you have Kshema Raja, you have the Adi Shankaracharya, you have Chaitanya, you have Svatmarama, you have Geranda, 
You have great yogis of history, you have Matsyendranata, you have Gorachanata, who are the fathers of Hatha Yoga, and you have all these great 20th century ones, as I said, so many names, so many times I could even make a name, a list of heroes here in yoga, and you should remember whenever you read their opinion about yoga, this is the opinion of competent people in yoga. It is the opinion of people who were number one in yoga, they are top of the list and therefore there is little probability, again I say, that you will read a book of Shivananda and you will find errors or spiritual misguidance, spiritual confusion. No, that man is very clear about what is spiritual and what is not spiritual, what is to be done and what is not to be done. Why? Because he did the trip himself and he knows exactly how to get there and how to reach success. He is not just one who makes the theory of it. And in this way, ah, yoga is of different kind and it's different forms of yoga and maybe Swami Shivananda is teaching Vedanta or something and you don't agree with him and you say, no, this form of yoga is not for me. That is your right. But still what he says is right in that particular direction. That is why I'm telling again and again, this is the way you should start selecting good literature in the field. I will not be able to comment more, I just gave you a few outlines, if you look after what I told you, you will immediately find 20 to 100 good books of yoga and you will be able to start reading. After you will be reading 100 good and excellent books of yoga, then when you will, you will be able to start taking any other yogic literature and start seeing this is absurd, this is too superficial, this is right, this is not right, and so on. So basically I am advising you that Svadhyaya means studying what is truly inspiring spiritually. Now for the end of this lecturing, I'd like to call your attention on one fact which could uh, trigger a lecture in itself, but I just would like to keep it short to call your attention on the fact itself. I said, it seems like there is a force which makes that the best literature of yoga, you cannot find it. That means you go in a shop, you cannot buy the Geranda Samhita, but you can buy the book of Bikram, or I don't know what about yoga. When the difference of quality is obvious, one of them is pretty low in quality, the other one is top of the top in what concerns quality. Is it just a wicked way of looking at it, or there is such a thing? According to yoga, there is such a thing. That means the yogis consider that information does not flow freely. People today are living in a superficial world where we have too many words. We are surrounded by <coughs> a lot of books, a lot of media, internet, everything. So many people say, ah, yoga, yes, I just click on internet and I'll find a lot of information about yoga. Ah, yoga, tantra, yes, I go to a big bookshop, I can find a lot of information about it and a lot of books and there are no more secrets and everything is published and so on. These people are usually enthusiastic, naive, who don't understand some of the basic principles. The yogis say, do not believe so easily in this because information itself is not for free. It flows according to some rules, exactly as energy obeys some rules when it falls, it, it flows, 
It's the same with information. That means we can have physical blockages. That means I'm blocked physically, I'm impure, whatever. We can have energy blockages, like the energy doesn't run properly to the right half of my body or something. And as well, we can have informational blockages. That means there are some people who are finding a lot of difficulty in reaching a certain information. Remember, not all the information is for everybody. The Latin writers in ancient Rome, they even had a proverb, which I cannot quote in Latin because it's too long and I don't remember it, which said books, just like human beings, have got their own incomprehensible destiny. That means the fact that a book was published doesn't mean that it will reach to you and that it is easy to get. If that book contains a very special information, it will disappear from the market and it will be completely unavailable and you will need to work hard and stubborn to get it. And even after you get it, if you are not careful, you will put it in a shelf and you will forget to read it or it, you will lose it three days after, if somebody will steal it, will pickpocket it from you in the bus or something. That means the information is having some amazing rules, but they have not been studied outside spiritual science and outside yoga. People continue to say naively to believe that you can get every information. They don't see that even at a social level the information is classified. You cannot just get information easily about how to build bombs, atomic bombs and things. It is kept secret even at a normal social level. And basically, uh, I'm telling you all this because spiritual information, it exists, but it is not available. In yoga, I have been challenged with this 22 years ago, and I have seen that people who do not deserve, who do not have the points, who do not have the merit to get a certain information, they cannot get it. The first one who said in history this thing, perhaps, was Buddha. Buddha himself says it very clearly, but he puts this in two different chapters of his book, so you have to be intelligent to put it together. In one chapter of one of his discourses, because he didn't write a book, it's just oral discourses, he says, Human suffering, pain, is caused by ignorance. Buddha is very sharp on it. He says, you suffer because of ignorance. Full stop. That means, he says, if you would be knowledgeable, you would have no pain. Simple, primitive example. Your father dies and you suffer like a dog. Stupid. Maybe you should laugh, like we spoke two days ago about death. Maybe death is the best thing which can happen to someone and you should celebrate. But because you are an egoist and an ignorant, you cry. Oh, my poor daddy, he has died. Stupid you. You know, somebody could laugh at you, roar with laughter, say, look at Michael, how stupidly he cries for his father, how ignorant he is. That means maybe if you would know where your father is now and what he is doing, and you would be able to take contact with him, you would rejoice and dance of joy that your father has died. And maybe the others will throw stones at you for being such a crazy person, but it doesn't matter. Buddha simply says, ignorance is the source of pain. All pain is, called by, is caused by ignorance. It's a very powerful statement which simply says knowledge could make us free. Knowledge could make us free of pain. 
That is why knowledge is not so simple. Knowledge is not so cheap and easy. There are false knowledge, useless knowledge, accumulating all kind of stupid data. That is not knowledge. That is just occupying your brain cells with useless information. Knowledge, knowledge is the knowledge which saves you, the real knowledge about the truth of your soul, about the truth of reality, about the universe, to understand who we are, what we are, what is life, and what are the deeper meanings. This kind of knowledge saves, it removes pain. And then the same Buddha, in another part of his elegant discourses, he says, and our power of understanding, that means knowledge, is determined by karma. Basically, Buddha says, if your karma does not allow you sternly to receive a certain knowledge, you will not get it. You will pass millimetrically by it and you will not get it. Why? Because your karma requires that you suffer and if you get too knowledgeable, you will not suffer anymore. You will become free. And that is why your karma takes care that you should not hear the truth because you need to bang your head hard and to suffer. So to make sure that you will suffer, you don't need to find out. If you find out, you will hear and forget. You will not be there. It is my most simple observation ever since I started teaching yoga, and now I've been teaching for almost 21 years, 20-something years, that when people don't need to hear something, they will not be there to hear it. I have met people exactly at the night where we taught in yoga something which was relevant for them, they are absent. They are not absent in any lecture, but exactly in the evening where we taught a lecture that was meant for them, then they were absent, you know. They had a lot of problems about sex, but in the night when we taught about Tantra, they were not there. If you ask them why, oh, I just had to walk on the beach and to be with myself, I thought I'm coming too often to this course and I just wanted to prove my own independence and I went and drank myself a bottle of beer and just stayed quiet, you know. This is how it works. In yoga we say it's not because of freedom, it's because your karma prevented you from hearing a truth which could have saved your day. It is the karma which prevents, you need to earn the right, you need to burn your karma, the negative one, you need to improve your karma to deserve to hear something. I have met people, even if they came to the yoga class, in the moment when we spoke about something, they lied down and fell asleep. They had a ten minute nap. Exactly, at the, then they woke up and they said, oh, did I miss something important? And in those ten minutes, there was an information which was exactly their critical point in the life. Exactly that thing. I have met, if you want, I can give you extreme cases. Once my yoga teacher, uh, he knew a girl that was one of the pupils in uh, his courses, and this girl was a very spectacular kind of girl, very gifted in a way, but she really had some very weird karma. Her blockages were really unusual. And then she had some problem, and then because my yoga teacher also liked her very much, she was very gifted in her yoga thing, he said, look, you have a problem here, and you know, your problem is typical in yoga literature. There is a paragraph in this book, it was the famous Tantra Sara of Kashmir Shaivas, says there is something in this book, which is in chapter 11, which describes exactly your problem and what to do, you know. So if you understand this, you will be completely saved from this. You will understand your status and your problem. It's just a matter of understanding, of realizing what you are and what kind of... So he said, I'm giving you this 
please read it. It will do you well. And this girl was not indifferent to spirituality. She was actually spiritually interested. We others were yellow of envy that this girl got this book because it was a manuscript book. It was not published. It was just typed on a typewriter and so on. We were dying to lay our hands on this book and to read some of those secrets there because we knew. But anyhow, this girl got it. After two weeks, my teacher asks her, did you read this book which I gave you? Did you? Ah, she said, I didn't have time. You know, I had to move my room and to, you know, it was a mess in my object. I didn't have time. I'm, do I'm doing it soon enough. After one week, he asked her again, did you read this book? Because, you know, I see you are in the same misery as ever. Uh, she said, now, you know, I was actually, I was not in the mood, you know, I never got myself together to sit. Then my yoga teacher realized, you're never going to read it, you know, it's one of those blockages. So he said, you know what, I've got my own copy of it, why don't you sit down here, and I am going to read it to you right now, you know, I mean, let's just break, let's just cut through this. I'm going to read it to you right now. Can you guess what happened? Yes, you guessed, she fell asleep. He read to her and she fell asleep in a one-to-one -one reading lecture and so on. She simply fell asleep. This is the story with information. If you don't, if you are not meant to get a certain information, you don't get it. You have to fight for information. This thing that there are books, it's illusory. Those of you who have been here and so on, you know, tell me, where do you find the information about cosmic and telluric energies, nadis, chakras, how do the asanas work? Everybody can say, ah, you are just big-headed, I'm just going to the biggest, to, to, I don't know, to the Fowleys in London and buy whatever yoga book. Yes, go, but you'll not find the information. It's not there, although the information exists. This is the problem. The information is uh, classified. I once, uh, for example, there was an experiment my yoga guru did at some point. Not, he didn't do it as an experiment, but it resulted as such. He had a very advanced group of yogis. There were like 16 people in that group. They were studying hard. And at some point, my yoga teacher taught a thing that he didn't teach for seven years after he didn't teach it again. It was just a one-timer. Something really, 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 really exceptional. Even I today hold that information as being... It was, I was not taught at that time. I was not part of that group. I was taught at another occasion. But still I'm holding that information as being one of the most advanced things that you can ever learn in yoga and most useful and most radical and completely, completely spiritual and amazing. And he taught it, and exactly in the day when he taught it, they came less than half. I mean, those people were already advanced and so on, but out of 16 they came only seven. And when in the next week he said, uh, you do this practice which I taught you last week, the other said, I oh, beg your pardon, what are you talking about? He said, I'm sorry, I have not been last week. You'll get it next time when it will be taught. End of story. It was not taught for another seven years or something like this. So basically the people who didn't get it in that day, they never got it again, actually. So in this way, because by that time it was all these communist problems and so on, there was a long story. I just want to tell you, this information, you have to fight for it. If you want to reach some dynamite information, it will not come to you just by lying down and waiting for it, unless you have a karma for it. If you earned your right to that information from a previous life or whatever, now it will come to you like you are having the luck of the pig. But if not, you will go around it. I have made this experiment so many times, not only looking at people who come or don't come to the yoga lectures, you know, just 
being a witness, you know, looking with detachment and seeing, you know, what is happening with people, what kind of books they read and what kind of information they get themselves into. I have even been with people in several situations through bookshops, you know, spiritual bookshops. And I knew what their problem was and I knew what they were looking for, but I didn't say anything. I just wanted to see what will they choose, what is their discrimination. And on the shelf, there was the book which corresponded exactly to their interest and to their problem. And they picked up the nearby book. They simply took another one because that one seemed more interesting, you know. I have simply seen it so many times and I am challenging you. Any one of you will stay in spirituality for a while <coughs> and you are going to see in a second that this is not only a spiritual problem, it exists elsewhere as well. And you will see that information is not for free. You will see that when you practice yoga, for example, you burn your karma, you go deeper, and suddenly you get to hear and to find out more. Then you discover, wow, this book, I could have bought it three years ago. It was on the shelves of the shops, but it never crossed my mind to buy it. Why? That is a blockage. There is a blockage that exists like a collective hypnosis, which makes that some information is not available. It sounds hard to believe, doesn't it? Well, find out that two French journalists, a French journalist, actually Jacques Bergier, he even wrote a book on this. It is called Le Livre Maudit, The Accursed Books, The Damned Books. It was translated in English as well. Jacques Bergier, starting from some observations because he was writing books on mysteries and so on, and he is a Marxist uh, a journalist, very materialistic, very, you know, pum. He wants facts. He doesn't want uh, abracadabra theories. And this guy has noticed, and he has done a lot of research, that there are some books which as soon as somebody touches and wants to publish them, they get in trouble. They disappear as soon as they are published, and they are called the accursed books. And there is not one of them. There is many, many. I told you a few days ago, and Philip asked me something about uh, Miss Blavatsky. Miss Blavatsky was in possession of one of them, the famous Tanzas of Zion, which she revealed herself through hypnosis, by being hypnotized, she went in an astral body in some place and she got them. And she was instructed not to publish them. These stanzas of Zion are one on the list of accursed books. Some of them are incredible, like for example there is a paragraph in the book of Ovid, the Latin poet Ovid, Publius Ovidius Naso, he wrote a book which is called Ars Amatoria, which means the art of love. And there is a paragraph in that book which no Latin translator puts in the books, which is omitted on purpose, because I have met Latin translators, that's what I know from, not because there is a doubt, but because they have a superstition that whoever is trying to translate and publish that paragraph gets trouble, including the fact that his family gets trouble, such as his child is dying, his wife is divorcing him, and stuff like this. And because of this, that paragraph is not published in most books about it, and you would be surprised to know what that paragraph contains because I found out in the end. It's about the sexual continence. It's about how to hold back your semen and stuff like this. So in this way, uh, there is information. You, when you read Jacques Bergier, and it's not a joke because he gives the books, the everything, you know, it's amazing. There are books, for example, even this guy from Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, he wrote a book which never appeared anywhere and doesn't exist. It's called Excalibur. This Excalibur was a manuscript, and the only time Ron Hubbard took out Excalibur, 
was to a, one some of his friends on a yacht when he got very rich. Ron Hubbard had a yacht and he was sailing and he made a trip with his friends. And then in the middle of the trip, he took out Excalibur and he said, now I'm going to read you my latest creation, something really special. And he read it and apparently according to what is known, to what Jacques Berger investigated on it, all the five people or so who read the lecture of Excalibur or of at least the part that read it, they lost their mind. They became crazy. They simply became insane by listening a chapter or a book and so on. That book does not exist. Nobody ever found it or published it. What was written in that book which can make, which can create such an effect? That is why do not fall in this uh, modernistic superstition that information is for free and you can click it here and there. It is not, information is not flowing for free. Spiritual information even more so because spiritual information is taking you out of misery. It is taking you out of this existential mud. It can give you the clarity to sail straight. It will spare you pain. Knowledge is the cure to pain. Remember, that's what Buddha says. That is why to become knowledgeable is amazing, but that should be real knowledge. It is what in yoga it's called jnana, jnana, the real knowledge of things. That is why the yogis are challenging you and they are selling search for knowledge, search for real knowledge. It will save your day. That means you will see that a lot of things, books, information, is not easily available as you thought. And therefore you are always challenged. You go to a bookshop and say, I want Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And the bookseller, that's typical in Rishikesh, will say, uh, no, no, it's so loud. No, no, it's not there anymore. And you don't insist anymore. You should insist. You should be dead stubborn until you find what you want to find. And when you found it, don't fall asleep, but read it. Read it carefully with a pen in your hand. Underline everything which is significant. Take notes from it. And that knowledge, once it gets into you indeed, when you read it indeed, not like the newspaper, blah, 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 then automatically it will change your life and it will push you to the next level. Remember, if your karma does not allow you to reach some information, there will be difficulties, obstacles of you reaching that information. Even Jesus at some point says, I'm talking to you, but not all my words are staying into you. In Romania we say, what I'm telling to you goes in through one year and comes out immediately through the other year. It's like it doesn't stay in you, no? you, are, you are brain dead or empty in your head, that you are, I'm telling to you the truth, and yet you are not listening. Let those who hear, let those who can hear understand, says uh, the Bible someplace, right? So, uh, basically, this is very important. The yogis have got a very uh, inquiring attitude on mystery. The yogis are very, very much interested in mystery, in knowledge. You have to get this knowledge, and it's like a treasure quest, you know? It's very thrilling to discover the knowledge. It's not so easy. Uh, you, you don't discover it, and you need to earn your right for it, to fight for it. Remember that. This phenomenon, you can say, yeah, yeah, it's kind of, it sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds too much. Maybe it's this Jacques Berger, yeah, maybe he's crazy also, you know. Read his book, anyhow, if you are interested in this kind of things. But you know what? This phenomenon is not only known in spirituality. Actually, there is knowledge which could change the face of the earth and which is never reaching to the public. 
you would be surprised if you go, for example, in circles of people studying alternative technology, you become paranoid in half an hour because there is so much forbidden technology out there. That means starting with 1930s and so on, Nikola Tesla and Viktor Schauberger and so many others after, they've created things about free energy, about anti-gravitation, about the fifth fundamental force, Albert Einstein and others, and they are completely unknown. They are blacked out. You know that ten years ago there is a big, there was a big hubbub, there was a big rumor about uh, two British uh, scientists who discovered the cold fusion. The cold fusion would be the dream of mankind. It means energy for free forever. No more Iraq oil problems or anything. No more pollution. No more glasshouse effect. No more incredible costs for transportation or anything. You can have free energy. Then you can heat yourself for free. You can move yourself for free. Build your own little car and have energy. I mean, it would be amazing to have free energy because you'd solve almost everything. Then there would be no big brother power over you because you'd be independent to live any way you want. Everybody said, wow, did these guys discover free fusion, cold fusion, to make fusion in a, in a glass? Imagine fusion from the sun to be able to produce it on earth, clean fusion. Amazing it would be. Theoretically, of course, it is possible and it should be possible one day that somebody discovers this. But you know what? Fleischmann and the other, whatever their name, Fischer, Fleischmann, whatever one of them was the main one, they suddenly disappeared from the market. You know, they simply vanished. And then, uh, cold fusion became, ah, yeah, it was, no, no, it was not. If you ask people, what do you know about cold fusion everywhere? They say, mm, well, it disappeared. We, I think it was a hoax, right? It was not true. Really? Nobody ever said it was a hoax. Where is the cold fusion? You'd be interested to know. A Danish engineer who was one of the most square and unimaginative people I have seen, but he was the manager of Danish Institute for Ecologic Technology and he was searching cold fusion in his own home. He had a laboratory and in the day he was like, a, you know, he was working in the day to make his money and in the evening he was living like a monk, you know, he was just doing scientific research in his own apartment. And he was the leader of a collective of people who were searching on this, some of them on anti-gravitation, some of them on free energy, a lot of very, very engineered. They did not do anything New Ageish. They were not meditating. They were not talking with alien ships. They were not believing in spirits. They were very square engineered type of people. This guy told me free energy, this uh, cold fusion. said, of course we are researching on it because everybody knows it exists because these guys stumbled over it. And then why it isn't known? Well, you'd be surprised. If you want, search. If any one of you has journalistic talents, search. Where is Mr. Fleischmann or Fischer or whatever his name who discovered it? You, you are curious to know? They know it in these circles. The guy owns a $5 million villa and property in the south of France and it was paid by the Japanese National Electric Company. Does this tell you anything? The man didn't discover the cold fusion, or at least this is what we are told. But the Japanese electric company offered him five million dollars for a mysterious purpose. So rings a bell. There, are, there was a South Af uh, Swiss engineer, followed by a South African collaborator of it. They made the generator of free electricity on a diamagnetic principle. This engineer, he told me, I have seen it with my own eyes. I have touched it. It was a box as big as this. It was made of 
plas transparent plastic so you could see through, you could see what it had in, and so on. The guy, of course, didn't want to sell the principal because, and so on, and so on. And uh, basically, the guy could produce 3,500 watts of electricity from a box like this forever. And wow, you know, I would like to have a box like that, not to pay electricity in my room, you know. It's funny to have one for free, and so on. And what happened? The guy announced that he will, pre that he will present it to an alternative. They have workshops, they have seminars, meetings, symposiums of free energy seminars, and the guy announced that he will present it, and actually at the time when he arrived there, he didn't present it anymore. Why? Because a mysterious company bought his patent, and he signed a paper that he was not allowed to sell it anymore because it was already sold for great money somebody who filled up his pocket. Who is buying them? Why don't they come to the market? We don't we need free energy? There's a lot of pollution on this planet. We keep burning fucking oil and polluting our atmosphere. And where is the free energy? You think that such things do not exist? Tesla, Nikola Tesla, who is a reputed scientist, in 1930s he announced that with the Tesla coil he can produce free energy forever for the whole humanity. All it needs just to build a lot of Tesla coils and towers of power and you can light the light in your room without anything, without having to take energy from anywhere. And the funny thing was that Nikola Tesla was sponsored by Westinghouse Electric in America and Westinghouse cut his sponsorship down when they heard he wanted to do this. So Nikola Tesla died abandoned, poor, and so on. There is a lot of synchronicity, and there is a lot of conspiracy theories according to which Nikola Tesla, together with Marconi, they actually went in a secret city in Venezuela, in the jungle, at the border of uh, Brazil, and there was a secret city of scientists in the cone of a volcano in Venezuela. There are so many things that we don't know about. These are just a drop among many. That means we seem to be living in a world which is known. But try to strike on the internet on the place which is called hollowearth.com. And you will see that that guy will tell you that the Admiral Baird of the American U.S. Navy has ascribed and even has been in the inside of the earth, that actually the earth is hollow inside. And there is a culture and a civilization living there which is very different from ours. In 1940-something, Admiral Baird of America, he wrote it in his diary, he was there together with an aide-de-camp. And you would be surprised to know what you don't know about it and so on. Is the earth hollow? Is it possible to black out such an information when we have satellites and everything? It seems it is possible. There was a broadcasting about the fact that there are secret bases on the dark side of the moon and so on, on the invisible side of the moon. You know that a simple survey made by BBC Science, it has shown that all the missions of the Americans and the Russians which had landed probes on the moon, on the front side they landed it all over, and on the back side of the moon, which we never get to see, they landed it in one single spot. It's like 50 probes landing in the same place. Why? What is in that spot? Of course, you are not informed because you don't have the right to that kind of information, right? But what is actually happening? So in this way, even in the world of science, it is known that a lot of things do not come out, either that they are blacked out by human beings, or sometimes they are simply forces which make that an information is lost. It is exactly like Ari Kwander, the discoverer of the jet engine in 1910, some aircraft engineer told him you have discovered the jet engine in 1910 and we are just able to use some propeller thing. My boy, you are born before your time, you know. It will take another 30 years before people will be able to understand what jet engines are good to. And it was right. 
So in the same way, some inventions, they can come before their time. I being interested in engineering, uh, because that was my background in the beginning, and having the mind for it and understanding physics, I have looked a lot in this. I have contacted a lot of this kind of people, and I have asked them to show me exactly what they had, and I have seen things that there is absolutely no scientific explanation for. I have seen things for which if that guy should publish it, he should get the Nobel Prize for Physics or something. It's more than the theory of relativity of Einstein. But the guy went with it to make it public. Things started happening in awry ways and so on. Uh, the guys told him, we cannot publish this because it is unexplainable. I mean, you did it, but it's, it doesn't have any mathematical explanation. So we cannot accept it because it, it will ruin half of the modern science if we accept this thing. And basically the guy being wise understood and he said, okay, it's not for this century, maybe next century. He put it in a drawer, he never came out with it. There were people who were stubborn and who never got to publish those things because they are very stubborn. They actually hit themselves against the wall. Let me give you a half spiritual one in terms of healing to see again. There, is, there was a Moldavian scientist, actually Russian Moldavian scientist called Suvorin. Suvorin is the first man who made a total study on fasting, healing cancer and other things by fasting. Fasting, black fasting. And he's the only man who wrote it. You don't find today. There is a, one of uh, that guy called Sheldon, which is called fasting, it may save your life. But it's the other one, and it's very superficial. Suvorin made a big one. And Suvorin went to Paris to present, to publish his book on fasting in France, because it was 19, 10 or 20, and France was the place to publish things. And Suvorin went to France to publish his manuscript on fasting, and he was discovered poisoned with gas with the head in the oven. So he had the head in the oven like he had choked himself with gas, like he had committed suicide by gas. But the interesting thing was not only that Suvorin had suicided himself in a weird way, but that nobody ever discovered the book on fasting. It was not published by other author ten years later to say that somebody stole it and was interested. It never appeared simply. The book of Suborin on healing by fasting doesn't exist until today. We just know some of his research, not all of his conclusions. In this way, yes, there are damned books and there is a lot of information which doesn't hit the media and you don't get to know about it. In parapsychology, the first one who noticed it was the famous American researcher Charles Fort. Charles Fort, he even wrote a book which was called also The Books of the Damned. And Charles Ford simply started his research by putting together facts. He simply took things from the newspapers and from the science books and he put them on the same page and they didn't make any sense. They were completely showing that we don't know anything because when you see them disparately, they seem to make sense. But when you put them together, they show that it's a total superstition that actually we don't know. If you are in, Charles Ford is the first man who wrote this kind of Eric von Daniken type of books about mysteries, parapsychology, powers of the mind, like Robert Charoux wrote many of them, and uh, Powers and Bergier wrote another one, and so on. The first man in history who did was Charles Ford, and he called it the Books of the Damned, and his book is a total provocation, is a rarity. Again, search for the Book of the Damned of Charles Ford, it's a classic, but see how quickly you can find it, if you can find it. And in this way, I'm telling you all this because he even gave a name, and that name is published until today. It is called the Wall of Silence. 
This phenomenon is known among scientists as the wall of silence. If somebody stumbles over some information which must not hit the media, there is a wall of silence. That information cannot get. I know that once in Romania, one of my university professors in mathematics, together with his brother, he made a device which apparently contradicted the third law of thermodynamics. If you can build something which contradicts the third law of thermodynamics, you should receive the Nobel Prize automatically. I mean, it's something so big that it will revolutionize the science. And that guy noticed, he sold it to the army, to the communist army, because in Romania at that time only the army had the kind of money to build such a thing. And still it was not working. A lot of obstacles. They could not deliver materials, they could not do this and that. And he was pushing. And my yoga teacher spoke with him. They met in my presence and a friend of mine in a park. And my yoga teacher told him, be careful because if you push this thing too far, you will die. You are not the first one in the line. You will simply be eliminated by some forces which are not necessarily humans. It's simply some forces of the balance of the universe which simply make that this information cannot hit the earth at this time because it would modify the karma of the earth. Out there, there are treatments for cancer. Why don't they come on the market? They don't come on the market because many people have a shitty karma and if they have been Dr. Mengele and Adolf Hitler in their previous life, now they have to pay, they have to bite the dust. It's the law of universal justice. When you have karma, you have to pay it and it would be unfair that you should get away with your karma. Only people who have this effort, this spiritual thing, working on it, they might reach to it. And that is why paradoxically you will see, if you will do yoga for five years, you will become able to heal cancer. You will become able to teach other people to heal cancer. But you will see that it doesn't work as simple as that. People are reluctant. When they want to do it, something is happening. When they accept, then their family comes in, steps in and says, no, no, that's a hocus-pocus guru from India. Uh, something is happening and it doesn't hit the market. Because karma is no joke. Remember, karma is a force which is amazing. To fight it, you have to be diamond, Vajra, like today, diamond and thunder. You have to be completely clear and have a firm willpower and know exactly what you want to do. That is why I'm telling you again, there is a lot of information out there. There is all this kind of conspiracy theory environment about the American government being mixed up with little gray aliens and things like this. You can even see it in Hollywood movies. Is it true or not? Can you really actually go and verify? You don't know. There's a lot of information which is, again, very, very problematic. That is why it's called the wall of silence. And in the world of silence it's known. It has happened time and again. The American Academy member, Filipov, he discovered apparently a principle which allowed him to send explosions by radio waves. Basically, he claimed that he discovered the ultimate weapon and he wanted to donate it to Lenin, to good old comrade Lenin. So, because uh, Professor Filipov, who is a very world-famous mathematic mathematician, physicist, chemist, biologist, this guy was a member of almost every academy of science in 1910 of Europe and America. He was a genius in many branches of science, not only in one, and he was a total nerd. He was having confidence in Lenin and his crap, which history has demonstrated what actually it was, how good it was. And this guy wrote a letter, which still exists, to Lenin, it's preserved in the archives, that he discovered the absolute weapon by which you could transmit explosions by radio waves. 
So if you want to bomb the White House, don't need to go with the bomb to the White House. You can just transmit a radio beam and the White House will pulverize. You do the explosion home in Siberia in a safe place and you just transmit. Imagine what warfare would be with such a weapon to be able to explode anything without going there, just with radio beams and so on. It would be a mess. This mankind is a mess anyhow with what we know today and what we have today. But imagine how many other things could be there. Filipov, when Lenin sent the NKVD or whatever the security service was called at that time, the, in 48 hours, they arrived to the laboratory of Filipov. Filipov was dead, his laboratory was destroyed, and nobody ever found any trace of his famous weapon or discovery. We don't know if there were people who did this, if there were angels who did it. Many people say, thank God that the asshole that was Lenin never got such a thing in his hand. Imagine what would have been the Soviet Union with such a weapon in their hands for something, in the hands of an idiot like Stalin, for example. So in this way, uh, this, there is a wall of silence, and I could quote tonight for you in a row 20 such examples, some of them illustrious. I will just conclude with one which is really known, because you think, ah, who is this Filipov? Never heard of him. It can't be true. It sounds like this, this guy tonight is really, it's like a fairy tale. It's over the top, really. Did you ever hear about diesel? You know what the diesel engine is? It is made by a German engineer called Diesel. Herr Diesel was not a freak, not a hippie. He was just a square German engineer who delivered the goods. He made engines. And he made a lot of discoveries in science and technology. Well, the good old square Mr. Diesel, he actually announced publicly and he convened a press conference to announce, to present the discovery and the prototype of the first engine ever working on water, which wouldn't need gasoline, it would need water, full stop. Wow, engines with water, wouldn't that be nice? Can you think what it would make to our civilization? Not to speak about, think what would have been the Second World War with tanks and airplanes driven by air engines. Because like this, at least they didn't have oil for every, all of them and they had to keep it in their pants. But if they would have had needed water, whew, imagine what it would have been, right? Diesel convened a press conference. He went to London or to Oxford, to some place, and he kept a lecture. There was a Congress of Thermodynamics. And when he came back with a boat from England to Germany, for his press conference, which was due soon, he disappeared. He simply disappeared from the boat. Some people say, ah, he probably fell in the night overboard. It's one of those stupid accidents. He just fell off the boat. Right, but you know what the interesting thing is and which doesn't fit? That nobody ever discovered the water engine. The prototype and the plans and the drawings and everything. And Diesel was not a liar. He was not a hypochondriac, uh, hyperthyroidian liar, compulsive anything, a hippie or a weirdo. He was an engineer. If he said he made an engine on water, he probably did because he did whatever he said until then. Nobody discovered the water engine of diesel. Many people say, thank God that they didn't discover because we don't deserve a water engine. We are so egoistic and so violent that pff, imagine what a water engine would do in the hands of the powerful ones and so on. Victor Schauberger, he claimed that he made a water engine as well. And this Danish engineer, the manager of the DFEP, he even told me that he saw one of them in a car. They were put on cars, and they had 50 cars in 1930 or something, driven with water. They were made cabs out of them, taxis. And he saw one of them put apart in pieces in the basement of a German guy. He still had it put into pieces. Why don't we get to hear about it? 
and there are so many other things. If I would start making a list, you would go frantic tonight. The thing is that there is a lot of information that doesn't hit the public. It doesn't hit the public because for a reason or another, the public is not supposed to hear that kind of things. That's why in yoga, we know that the more you dig, the more knowledgeable you become and you get to know some things which are completely out of the public circuit and you get to know a lot of things and you know that even if you get to know how to make a water engine you will not be able to make it public because if you will want to make it public you will die like diesel you will be the next one to disappear something prevents that information of becoming public either it is some human forces or not that is up to you to decide. In the wall of the silence, there is even the famous story which prompted a Hollywood movie, Hollywood movie as disinformation, because that's what they are meant for, many of them, just to make you say, oh, I heard about this, it was a Hollywood movie, wasn't it? And then you sleep back, it's good to put you asleep. About the famous man in black. The man in black is not just the rock pop singer Will Smith and his stupid jokes, and Tommy Lee Jones, it's a phenomenon which was reported. Every time when UFOs appeared and there were material evidence of it, there appeared three guys dressed in black, like you saw there, and they were talking something to the people in the area, and the people in the area, they got scared to death, and they gave all the evidence. I personally wouldn't believe no one who received the visit of the three men in black in the 1960s in Romania, in full communist times, he was investigating an area with UFO phenomena. He got a lot of photos and a lot of traces. And one day he got the three men in black visiting him. And his friend told me this was an engineer and who still researches on that. And he even wrote a couple of books on that area. And this guy, he became totally paranoid and never came out of his house. He almost became psychically ill because after receiving this visit, you'd say, how could the three, who are they? Is it a physical thing? Is people who materialize, dematerialize, they are aliens, they are earthlings, what the heck are they? How could the three men in black get in 1965 in the house of a Romanian engineer in full communist rule when not even, I mean, even the dogs were registered, you know? I mean, you couldn't just come in Romania and where did they come from? Did they, did they, were they in league with the communist government or where did they come from? This is why I say there is a lot of stuff out there and if you really want to grow up, you will need to start earning your right to knowing these kind of things. Work, meditate, tell to the universe that you want to know, that you are prepared to grow up, that you don't want to sleep, that you don't want to be a sheep, that you want to act on these kind of things, and slowly, slowly the gates of knowledge will open for you. I can guarantee that if you'll stay in yoga and things like this, real ones, if it's new age, you are just going to waste your time, believe me, on this one because after 20-something years, I know what I'm talking about. But uh, if you will stay in a real active spirituality, after five years you will be a very different kind of person, knowing a lot of things, and knowing that not all of them are made for everybody, that they should just be given gradually, step by step, that people need to grow up, that people need to stand on their own feet and learn a lot of things. Remember, there are a lot of forces of nature that we don't know, there are a lot of things out there, and some of them could change our lives amazingly. That is why it is worth investigating. I am always stimulating in people curiosity, you know, the mystery, the research. Read books about it, take all the facts and look upon them carefully. 
Do your own research. There are many, many, many mysterious things. And people who are complacently becoming potato, couch potatoes, you know, sitting and watching television and getting brainwashed by CNN and God knows who else, you don't get there. Use your mind. God gave you a brilliant intelligence. Use it. Dig a little bit under the surface. You'll find out a lot of wonderful things. That is why Svadhyaya is having this problem, coming back to our story. It is important to study spiritually, but when in a time like this where spirituality is so disturbed and corrupted, many things which you study are actually not spirituality, so you have to be careful not to get into some dead ends. Bottom line to end this one, the yogis recommend study spiritually. Wake up, use the study to learn new things and to get to a deep knowledge and you will become another kind of person. You will also be inspired. Remember that if you read the book, The Words of Jesus from the Bible or from the Apocryphal, some people have this thing, oh, but the church is a pig, the church has corrupted the uh, Gospels and the Words. Not so much. You, the, actually, we have available the first century Gnostic Gospels which were discovered in Nag Hammadi and others. And when you compare them with the Bible of today, you find some differences which are very significant, but there are not so many. Jesus was very much the way he was told to be. He was that kind of person that you read. He was hot. He was a fanatic in this way. He was completely God-oriented. He was possessed by his mission of changing the world and so on. He was indeed an amazing. And if you read the words of Jesus, then you get telepathically in touch with Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be telepathically in touch with one like Jesus? or with one like Buddha, or with one like Ramakrishna, or with one like Shankaracharya, or with one like Abhinava Gupta. These are amazing spirits, and that is why, yes, spiritual culture is good. You should practice a little bit of it. Even those of you who are totally unintellectual and they don't like to read, spend a minute a day, spend five minutes every day reading a page of something truly spiritual. It will enrich you and it will take you deep. I have no more to say. This was the story of today's Vadiaya. Read in the papers that you received. You'll have a lot of stuff there as well. Not about the scientific wall of the science. And this, this was just a colorful thing. I wanted to let you know that it's not just a yoga trip. It exists everywhere. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.